This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew Wapit. As a child, I was terrified of bears. I grew up in Alaska and my father, a doctor, would come home from the hospital with stories of bear maulings, describing the patients that he saw in the emergency room who had their faces torn off and arms snapped in half from a single bite. I remember one memorable evening in 2005 as I was fishing on the Russian River for sockeye salmon. A sow grizzly and three cubs silently emerged from the forest just 50 feet in front of me. They waded across the river and then walked off with my catch as I watched helplessly. At that moment, I was flooded by a complicated mixture of emotions, terror and fear, but I was also awestruck by the beauty and power of these remarkable creatures. Bears have been making a comeback since the 1970s, and recent science shows that bears play an important part in our ecosystem and our economy. So today, we're going to talk about why you should care about bears. Our guest today is Dr. Barry Gilbert, a bear biologist who currently lives in Ontario, Canada. Dr. Gilbert started his career in Alberta, Canada as a wildlife research biologist and eventually joined the faculty of Utah State University. Today, we're talking about his recent book, One of Us, A Biologist's Walk Among Bears. Thank you, Barry, for joining me today for this conversation. Do you prefer that I call you Barry or Dr. Gilbert? Uh, Barry is uh, just fine. I'm happy to speak to you because I think the message will really uh, get something out of both this interview, I hope, and uh, my book if they choose to buy it. Yeah, I hope so, too. I hope so, too. So kind of to begin, um, how did you become interested in studying bears? It was purely by accident. I had a job as a wildlife biologist for the province of Alberta. And uh, when I started my uh, position there, the black bears in northwest Alberta were doing uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars damage to beekeepers. And my boss said, why don't you have a go at this? So I, I did a study with my technician. We, we studied uh, 60 bee yards and used different techniques. So when I uh, got the position at Utah State and, and left Alberta, I thought I'd go to uh, Yellowstone and see if they... Uh, had any interest in having a researcher do a study uh, on grizzly bears, but uh, they were quite interested in having somebody look at people on trails and uh, what they do and how the bears react to people on trails. So that's how I got into uh, the grizzly bear work. Unfortunately, within uh, a week or so, my student and I were at 9,000 feet and I came over the top uh, and uh, Lo and behold, there was a grizzly bear at 9,000 feet. She <laughs> chased me down in no time at all. Unfortunately, the serious part of it was that I was moving fast toward her. It was like I was charging her because I wanted to get off the skyline so I wouldn't get a bunch of elk down below barking at me and ruining the observations. But uh, I got pinned down and uh, torn up and luckily uh, had the most successful uh, rescue uh, back to Salt Lake Medical Center that you could possibly imagine. Everything was good luck after that, including saving my one eye and uh, patching up um, part of my face and putting my scalp back on. 
it's easy to laugh at now, but uh, it was a mess. One of the smoke jumpers, jumpers said uh, when he came on the scene, he said, it looked like a body bag job to me. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a traumatic start to your career, right? At the very beginning of your work with, with bears. Um, so why, why did you go back? Why did you decide to keep studying bears after that experience? And I think maybe even more importantly, how did that experience shape your relationship with bears? Well, I, I think it was so short, and uh, I was 40 years old. I think somehow I just put it aside as an accident. So I got a request for a research proposal in Alaska to study bears and people at Brooks River, where they had 30 or 40 bears among 500 people. And so I wrote a proposal, and uh, they accepted it. There I was getting off the plane, looking at these 800-pound uh, bears, and I thought, I'm not going to make it here. <laughs> I'll, I'll just have to tag along with a ranger with a big gun most of the time. But within a couple of days, I was uh, walking people home in, in the dark uh, through bear country. Uh, somehow, I either didn't learn much from my accident or I realized that bears are very different in different places. And just like big dogs, if you treat them right, they won't bite you. And uh, we can, in fact, get along with grizzly bears. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we should we should note here that, you know, you do cover a lot of this, uh, this history and sort of your, your formative years as a researcher with bears in your in your new book, which what came out in 2020, I believe is called One of Us, a Biologist Walk Among Bears. But um, in that book, you spend quite a bit of time talking about the cultural relationship between bears and and people and particularly at the beginning right indigenous peoples here in north america you mentioned that right westerners had sort of a demonized bears but indigenous peoples had a relationship with bears long before that um and how so how did tribal peoples here in the u.s and canada define their relationship with bears and how were they able to peacefully coexist with these large predators well, one of the reasons that i went back and read in fact i got 12 copies of the Lewis and Clark expedition reports. And I like their incredibly detailed description of everything from the turns of the river, the sandbars. And I thought, when these people run into grizzly bears, they're not going to make up a cowboy story about how the interaction went. And so uh, there wasn't a whole lot about uh, native attitudes in there. But Subsequently, I've been reading that uh, indigenous people treated grizzly bears somewhat like wolves. They were smart animals that they could learn things to hunt from. And they realized, of course, that wolves were pack animals like people are. And, of course, they tamed them or domesticated them. They didn't really domesticate them because they didn't breed them, but they formed close relationships with wolves. And I think probably those wolf dogs helped uh, them keep bears away from their encampments. But I think uh, your question is that uh, I think leads us to believe that they had both fear and respect for these animals and were able to get along with them reasonably well. 
So as as Europeans slowly colonized the West, however, so as Lewis and Clark came over, well, and and before them, right, the mountain men, but eventually a whole herd of pioneers and other folks started coming across uh, the plains and colonizing the West. They began to push bears out. And in fact, grizzly bears were largely extinct in the lower 48 states by the early 20th century. So why were Europeans and, and these colonist settlers so afraid of bears? And how did that eventual disappearance of bears affect the ecosystem here in the West? Well, I think it's pretty clear that uh, the uh, settlers came mostly from Western Europe. They were sheep farmers, uh, cattlemen, and uh, some agriculture as things went on, turning up the sod. And uh, grizzly bears and wolves were both, uh, as you say, almost exterminated. Wolves were exterminated uh, from the United States. And I think it was because not only were they demonized, but they were really a, a threat to uh, sheep. Sheep are the, the most uh, predator-friendly uh, animal you could imagine. And so it wouldn't be good enough to try and have dogs around them. They just got rid of the uh, of the carnivores. And uh, they had a similar attitude to pocket gophers and... Uh, and prairie dogs and any kind of animal that would be a competitor, I think. Well, and so what was the effect of that disappearance of bears on the oh, ecosystem? Yeah. Well, that's that's uh, something for future research. I can tell you uh, in Alaska and on the West Coast, bears are uh, keystone species in moving nutrients from salmon into the forest. They're basically fertilizing the, the system. And this is, uh, some authors have said that uh, ecosystems are, are too complex for humans to understand. Theirs are great diggers and turning over soil uh, increases the productivity of the system. Doesn't matter where it is, dens, whether they're digging up uh, pocket gophers, uh, they can almost plow a field. Uh, looking for rodents and rodent nests. Those big claws really work. They do. They do. Well, I I mentioned this before. I grew up in Alaska, out just outside of Denali National Park. And, you know, I, whenever we'd have family and other people come up to visit us, we'd take them in the park. And they were always so disappointed that the bears weren't chasing the caribou or chasing the moose. And right. they were sitting there digging, right, and yeah. digging up roots and little small animals or they're eating berries that you know and bears really are these incredible omnivores that just eat really anything that comes across their path <laughs> yeah they can feed on sedges in uh, marshlands and estuaries they do that in uh, alaska and uh, west coast throughout the whole spring uh, it looks like when you find their scat it looks like horse manure it's 100 percent sedge uh, and they, they can maintain themselves on that by eating a huge amount of it. So, yeah, very yeah. interesting and highly adaptable mammal. Yeah. So although we're still coming to understand how bears impact the ecosystem, um, we, we do know that bears have an impact on the economy. And a lot of your research is on sort of that human-wildlife interaction. 
Um, how do bears help the modern economy? And are there any economic implications for the loss of bears? Terrific question. Uh, there were a couple of studies on the West Coast that showed that uh, ecotourism uh, is something like 12 times as uh, stimulating to the economy, the dollars that are brought into local economies, than bear hunting. And uh, I've spent 14 years uh, as a naturalist on uh, boats uh, on the West Coast. Uh, I only go up for a week or two. But uh, people that are our guests come from all over the world, many, many Europeans, Australians, Germans, French, and uh, they spend a huge amount of money both on the trips and also um, in hotels and flights in and all this sort of thing. So ecotourism and uh, wildlife tourism is brings uh, a huge amount of uh, money. Now you could say all that flying isn't so good for global warming, climate change, but uh, people are going to go and, and have trips just like they've have gone to East Africa to see lions and elephants and enjoy the Serengeti Plains and that sort of thing. We have that coming to North America, and it's not all on salmon streams. Some places like Glacier, where they concentrate or congregate on uh, berry fields, you can predictably see them. The nice thing about salmon streams, of course, is that you know exactly where the bears are and how long they're going to be there. And the ones at Brooks River, I compared them to big dogs. They will just walk by you at 10 or 15 feet. I mean, it's, it's just astonishing. I mean, some people, there was one woman from Texas who realized that the rangers didn't have these bears on a leash. And she went into her cabin and locked the door and took the next plane out. <laughs> she just, She couldn't handle it. Well, and Brooks River is, but most people are probably familiar with it because it's where you see those pictures of the bears at the waterfall catching salmon in their right. mouth. And so most people who've seen a bear picture have probably seen an image of Brooks River at some point in their life. That's right. That's right. With the uh, pandemic, the uh, tourist economy has been uh, decimated in British Columbia and uh, and especially in Alaska because so many people you know, Alaska's on their bucket list. And as you know, it's a beautiful, wild country with some of the most amazing animals, uh, mountain goats, mountain sheep, doll sheep, uh, and uh, it goes on forever. Yeah, it it is incredible. And I do know that many people have been really hard hit by, by the pandemic. Um, but kind of on that note, just as a side sort of aside, has has the pandemic and sort of that reduction in tourist uh, pressure, we could call it, had an impact on, on bears and say Brooks Falls or McNeil River? Do you know that? I think that Brooks uh, Falls has had some of the highest runs of salmon. The whole uh, Bristol Bay run is the biggest in North America, and it was something like 10 million fish over the, their highest estimate. So something's going on there that's very good for bears. And to the extent that tourists can get in there and find accommodation or camp, I think places like Brooks, if you call 
crowds of people uh, success, they're having success. But it's important for people going out to know what to do and uh, with theirs and, and control or fear. Theirs do not injure that many people. But uh, if you've never seen a grizzly, your first reaction is to find a big tree and get right to the top of it. Whereas if you, you know, it's it's kind of you and I would do well in the field because it's like with a big dog. You look at the dog, you try and figure out what its motivation is. And if it looks aggressive, you back off and do something else. Yeah. Yeah. No, as they, I mean, that's one of the great success stories, right? As grizzlies were protected by the Endangered Species Act, uh, they've been able to recover in many parts of the lower 48 in Canada. Um, but uh, it's as it expands its range, right? It runs into more people and there's more human animal conflict and uh, it continues to right, create an existential threat, I think, to the grizzly's continued survival. So in your opinion, uh, what is the greatest threat to the grizzly's continued survival in the lower 48 states here? Well, I think uh, human behavior in the sense that uh, people aren't uh, defending or, or uh, enclosing the foods that they can get into, whether it's horse feed or dog chow or bird feeders or whatever. So we uh, hold the keys uh, to the kingdom for the bears. Uh, they will find that food. And of course, once they get into it, like uh, number 399 and her four cubs has started uh, in Teton Park to get into trouble. And so bears don't unlearn habits. When they find out where there's good food, you have to either move the bear or put a... Uh, a food source of another kind, maybe road kills. I've even suggested big bags of dog food in a in a remote area to get the bear away from people because so many people are armed and they feel threatened that they will uh, they will kill bears. And and the statistics are quite good on this. Uh, the Yellowstone bears are being killed outside the. Uh, protected areas at, at the highest rate in the last two decades. They really, bears, you can say they're getting into trouble, but it's the people that are causing the trouble. In a way, we're, we're basically killing the victim of our misbehavior. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. We, we, we feel so threatened by them, and yet we are the greatest threat to yes. bears. Yeah. Um, yeah. Certainly. But, you know, you and I, if we had a small holding or a farm in central Idaho and we had young children, we wouldn't be too happy if their grizzly bears were moving in. It, it changes all the way you the way you behave. And uh, I consider that good. But a lot of people say, uh-uh, the, the, the most uh, sort of Western focused people that consider themselves the real Westerners are sometimes the ones that want to kill bears. This is, to me, a real paradox. The grizzly bear is, is part of the West. And uh, if you can't handle them, then maybe upper New York State will be good for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to say love it or leave it, but uh, I think people are, are actually realizing that bears are 
like very big, intelligent dogs. I take an anthropologist's approach to them, look at different cultures of bears in different places, and it totally opened up my mind. I was never trained to understand that all mammals and one species aren't, uh, you know, beans in a bag. They're very diverse, and uh, they adapt to the country they're in and the way people treat them. And if we abuse them, then they're they're more likely to attack us, I think. Yeah. Well, so you have a lifetime of experience of research here on bears. Um, you've spent the majority of your career, again, and you mentioned in California and Canada and Alaska and all over the U.S. studying bears. What is the most important lesson that you've learned over your career? I think it would be the, uh, as I've already said, the significance of human behavior. We need more sociological studies of, of humans. And I think I've learned that we can accommodate grizzly bears if we can get over our fear. Mother bear teaches the cubs all kinds of things, what to fear, what to eat, on and on, where to den, and all these sorts of things. So to me, the the biggest eye-opener through my whole career was uh, recognizing that grizzly bears are like humans. We have a brain that's uh, programmed through our early life. So it's the importance of... Uh, of learning in the life of these animals that uh, affected me most, I think. Yeah. So why we're, we're currently recording this for Utah public radio, but I think that this question could go for anybody living in an urban area. Why should somebody living in the middle of Salt Lake city care about bears? Another good question. I would answer that uh, while they live in Salt Lake city, Many, many of them love the outdoors. Utah is a great place to hike, mountains, skiing. And uh, when they go backpacking or hiking in the summer, despite living in Salt Lake, they need to know something about bears, just like they need to know something about cold water or forest fires and this sort of thing. We shouldn't be that afraid of grizzly bears. There aren't that many of them. And uh, they really need our help. Yeah. So what can we do as the general public to help protect grizzly bears outside of education and getting to know them? Are there other things that we can do to help protect bears? I guess uh, joining organizations or supporting organizations, even if you send a few dollars to people like uh, there's a new group, uh, Save the Yellowstone Grizzly has a, a website, Alliance for the Wild Rockies and make sure that the Endangered Species Act is uh, effective. Yeah. Yeah, well, I I genuinely appreciate this, this conversation. Um, you know, I think most people uh, continue to harbor just this tremendous fear of these remarkable, remarkable creatures. I was actually just up in Grand Teton National Park a few weeks ago, and it, it, my wife and I laughed because everybody 
everybody is carrying around multiple cans of bear spray, right? right. It's like, right. It's like yeah. the latest, uh, the latest yeah. fashion accessory and you have to have it strapped on your vest or your belt or, right. or something else. And it's just such a message that we still have this deeply rooted yeah. fear of bears I had a colleague that you, you used to call bear spray brains in a can, and he said it doesn't work. You still have to learn something about the animal. But at least people are doing it rather than packing a three fifty seven Magnum or something like that. Uh, I, I can see their fear, but if you go to places where there are bears on the road, like 399 or, or Lamar Valley in Yellowstone, you will see bears closer than you couldn't imagine. And they are completely benign toward people. They just see so many that they want to get off the road and do their and feed on what they're after. So Yeah. Bears want to be bears. Yep. They sure do. <laughs> yeah. That's Dr. Barry Gilbert, a bear biologist who currently lives in Ontario, Canada, and formerly research faculty here at Utah State University. Today, we were talking about his recent book, One of Us, A Biologist's Walk Among Bears. Dr. Gilbert, thank you. Great, uh, great questions, Matt. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio with support from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm your host, Matthew Wapit. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. Big ideas.